Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Listening to or watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. We're going to try to do more videos for you guys um, instead of just audio. Um, because I know that's much more shareable. So uh, we enjoy doing the Google Hangouts. And I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Pastor Dennis Edwards. Welcome, Dr. Edwards. Hi, thank you. It's really good to be with you, Lisa. <laughs> I met Dr. Um, Edwards through uh, Dr. Vince Bantu. Um, those of you who are regulars on the podcast know Dr. Bantu did a... Um, a, a podcast on um, the white man's religion, which was very, very informative. And when I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago, he suggested that I connect with uh, his mentor, Dr. Edwards. So when I was in Minnesota last week, um, me and Dr. Edwards got a chance to connect because he lives in Minnesota. Um, so um, that was a good thing. So we had a, had had an opportunity uh, to meet and have conversation. And I just wanted to bring him on the podcast um, to introduce him to all of our Jude 3 followers and to talk about his journey, apologetics. Um, mm -hmm. He's recently wrote a, I'll let him tell a little bit about himself, but mm -hmm. working on a commentary for Zonder, Zondervan on First Peter, which is big in the apologetics world because First Peter 3 um, tells us to be able to uh, always be able to give a defense for the hope that we have. So um, I think he's a great person to have one here, a New Testament scholar, and mm -hmm. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about himself. Wow. So uh, Dr. Edwards, go go for it. Sure. Thank you, Lisa. Um, that was a gracious introduction. But yeah, I'm a pastor currently of the senior pastor at the Sanctuary Covenant Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I've been here for about four years. Prior to that, I spent about uh, almost 18 years in Washington, D.C., where I raised my family. And I served an established church there, as well as planting a church. That church is called Peace Fellowship and still is going strong. Uh, prior to that, I was a, a young church planter in New York City. Not sure what I was doing. This is back in the late 80s and early 90s. <laughs> I've experienced two times planting a church and now twice serving established churches. And along the way, I did a, a doctorate in biblical studies at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., where um, my focus was on New Testament, uh, particularly uh, the book of James was where I did my dissertation work. But I have a particular interest in the general epistles uh, toward the end of the New Testament there. Um, but that's that's my quick academic background. I'm married for be 34 years this month and have four adult children. Awesome. So um, I thought it was interesting when we were talking about your journey. Um, you told me that you were saved in a oneness uh, mm. Pentecostal church. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in a, attending a little storefront church in uh, Queens, New York. And uh, yeah, and it was, you know, I didn't know any different, um, but we were taught very strongly, excuse me, <clears throat> we were taught very strongly that there was no Trinity. We saw that as a negative thing. Uh, it was a Catholic thing, and that there was Jesus only. And every sermon ended up with um, an altar call, but an appeal was made to Acts 2.38. Every sermon uh, ended that way. And even years later, when I visited a oneness church, 
I smiled inside because, you know, after maybe 40 years, um, that pastor ended his sermon. Whatever he was preaching on came back to Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And there was a, so there was a formula there. You repent, you get baptized, you receive the Holy Ghost, which is the um, evidence of would be speaking in tongues. But that formula um, said, you know, when they said baptize in the name of Jesus, the teaching was, you know, Jesus said at the Great Commission to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here Peter is saying at Pentecost, baptize in the name of Jesus. And their argument is that he understood now that Jesus is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's only Jesus, Jesus only. So they would nickname themselves even Jesus only as, uh, as the name of their uh, movement. So, yes, I grew up with that kind of thinking, didn't know there was even any other kind of thinking, but, um, but that was my background. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really interesting when we talked, um, we spoke about the fact that sometimes when people, you know, when you, if you say I've, I'm coming from a Pentecostal background, you have to identify, well, I'm not oneness <laughs> um, <laughs> because there's the oneness kind of um, denomination, then there's the Pentecostalism that believes in the Trinity. And I think that sometimes people malicious think that people who are grew up in those denominations are being malicious and spreading heresy on purpose, when in fact, that's all they have known. And we should be gracious, correcting them in the spirit of love, yeah. um, praying that God will correct their hearts and show them um, the proper way. How was that journey for you to go from oneness to Trinitarian? Yeah, that's a very thoughtful uh, thing that you have just said, because as a kid, I didn't know any different. And when I went off to college, I got involved in a campus movement. They just found me, invited me to Bible study. I remember checking with my pastor to make sure he was okay to be in this Bible study, because I didn't know. And he said, sure, you can, you know, be around people who, who want to be in the Bible. So he was not, um, um, uh, uh, keeping me away from studying the scriptures. So there was nothing malicious or cultic in that regard. Um, he, he wanted me to, to grow as a young man. So, but when I went to that Bible study, I was surprised to find how many people thought differently about the Holy Spirit. And they probably looked at me as a heretic, but I, I just was going along with what I was learning. I would say the church in my childhood very much thought <clears throat> that they were giving, um, their best effort at understanding the scriptures, even though it didn't line up with orthodox teaching. So you're right, it wasn't malicious or anything like that. I mean, as with a lot of churches, there was an air of self-righteousness, but it wasn't born out of that particular doctrine. <laughs> um, it was just, that was part and parcel of the, of the way the church was. But, um, but yeah, I, so I, I was exposed to, uh, I guess I would say more orthodox teaching during my college years. And it was during that time that, um, even the, the um, my campus minister person, and then his, his um, uh, I guess you would call him the campus director, he even one time brought the campus director in to kind of focus on me in the Bible study. And I was wondering, why is all this focus on me? And it wasn't <laughs> until maybe a year later, I understood that they were trying to get me to look at uh, my, my view of, of Jesus, of God, of the Holy Spirit differently. And, and, uh, and it was probably by, yeah, by my sophomore year, I kind of yielded and said, oh, okay, maybe uh, maybe there is a different way to understand this. And I did move away from that church in my childhood, um, mostly because people were not of the mindset to, uh, to change their theological views. And I needed to be in a place where I could be exposed to 
a broader a range of theological teaching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's important to note that a lot of times we know people that are in the oneness movement, mm-hmm. um, they do think they're right. Uh, <laughs> and that um, it is a big deal um, in orthodoxy, uh, the distinction between God in three persons coexisting, yes. uh, uh, which is a mystery how that kind of unfolds when you start trying to explain it to people, it gets kind of sticky. Right. Um, but a lot of, a lot of people that uh, may be in oneness movements don't have the tools, sometimes weren't trained with the tools to properly interpret the text. And sometimes the best way to do it or to deal with someone is to present them with proper tools before you try to attack um, their their doctrine. What what do you think about that? That's also very perceptive. I I think um, this notion of having the right tools is a big deal to me. I think it's one reason why I pursued a doctorate in the first place. I felt that I was often like a um, I was a sponge. You know, I would soak up whatever was being taught. But there were times when teachers would, you know, sort of arrogantly throw out, well, in the Greek it says this, or this means that, and but never gave me guidance on how I could find that out myself. And mm-hmm. I was of the mindset that I just wanted to know. I wanted to learn and grow. So I would say there are a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, who are like me, or and maybe still are, that just wanted to grow, yet at the same time, getting those tools in hand is tough. I mean, my little inner city church growing up, um, I had no concept of seminary or Bible college or more sophisticated ways of learning things. The best we hope for is you go to Sunday school and you get a good adult Sunday school teacher. Um, so making that connection became very important to me to figure out how to how do regular church folk get exposed to good um, teaching, theological teaching, but also get taught how to study the text themselves. <clears throat> Not everyone will have ears to hear, but for those who do, they, their eyes can be open to, uh, to, I think, treating the text more uh, consistently, respectfully, and grow from it. Because mm-hmm. I, I think if you kind of fight people on every doctrine without showing them the tools, That's right. um, then you're, it's not as beneficial. Uh, this whole method of self-discovery through reading the scriptures mm-hmm. is more helpful than saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to take you back to Sabellianism and show you that we've already decided uh, at the council that this was heresy. Right. Um, right. And when you're talking to someone who has no frame of reference for that, you're, you're not going to have much success. And I think a lot of people don't realize the disparity of learning in um, the Black Pentecostal context. And so they don't have a lot of patience because they don't understand the context. Yeah, um, that's well said. Um, quick to kind of throw people out and, um, and not realizing people are intentionally being heretics. They just don't have the tools and they weren't taught the tools. Yeah. And until we invest in them, we won't see a, a, a change. I, I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I know that was true for me. And uh, and I know that's true for a few others, friends of mine that I've gotten to know over the years that came out of a similar background, even though in a different city or a different context. Um, and uh, and we were grateful to to get some tools to be able to to um, 
treat the scriptures the way I think they, they should be treated. So I agree with you there. Um, I would say, you know, there's a place where um, not everyone is open. I mean, because I think of the other kind of heresy, you know, Arianism with a different view. And those folks knock, you know, knock on my door from time to time. And, and, they are, and they're, and they're um, you know, they have a mindset that uh, I can't tell them anything. And uh, mm-hmm. so I would say, you know, people would need to be open to being taught. But at the same time, um, if we're not, uh, if, we, if we come at everything as a battle, I don't think that we are um, uh, really doing service to the gospel. I mean, we do fight as Jude 3. We fight for the faith, but um, our fighting for the faith may look different in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always the kind of antagonism I think that we might assume uh, at times. So I may be more than you're asking, but I feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good. We have to contend for the faith without being contentious. Yeah, well said. <laughs> um. And so uh, that's difficult sometimes for us to do, especially the more knowledge you get. I know it was true for me. The more knowledge I got, the more arrogant I became early on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that the scripture's true knowledge puffs up, but I believe God has a way of humbling us. Yeah. Experiences of life. Yeah, amen. Um, now there's movements uh, that kind of in the Pentecostal church are kind of these, there's like a joint, college bishops where bishops that are are oneness and and trinitarian come together Hmm. um and it's sometimes i wonder do people not really understand church history to know the the dynamics of why this is so important because the group come together i I believe observe this like the carlton pearson thing when they kind of when he went to the college um, and they were saying he was a heretic uh, for universalism, but then they had a joint college with uh, Trinitarians and oneness. And it at least one to think, well, what is, if we're taking a stance on heresy, how do we be, how are we consistent? Yeah. And it just shows, you know, the disconnect sometimes um, with what we're talking about. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's very that's thoughtful. Cool. I hadn't, um, I hadn't um, uh, thought uh, like that. I, I think you're right. I mean, but you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. There are certain doctrines that uh, maybe come easy to us and the Trinity is difficult, right? So, <laughs> so we might not consciously think of it. It's like, it's like the random person when you ask them to pray in the church and, you know, they're happy to pray publicly, but they'll pray things like, um, you know, they'll pray to the father and thank him for dying on the cross for us. Now, that's that's heresy really you know and um <laughs> the father didn't hang on the cross but but we would not sort of expose that person they have this earnestness they really you know really want to pray and and one time i said something about that in church and i in a different church i was serving and people roll their eyes like why would you hold the people to such scrutiny you know like just you know like lighten up but it kind of so it made me laugh that technically they're praying heresy you know <laughs> of the father dying on the cross but our graciousness is such that we appreciate their earnestness. And I think that's what's happening even on a larger scale. It's sort of the, the, the higher value maybe of some kind of collegiality trumps our theology at times. Sometimes that's not so bad. You know, sometimes that opens up a door for us to have further conversation. But it does make me kind of, kind of laugh because, uh, you know, many times we're building walls and uh, we don't actually need to. We could be... Um, continuing to make pathways and extending the table of fellowship if we um, understood more where, why people are believing what they're believing. 
because sometimes they don't know. They just simply mm-hmm. grew up in that church and they're parroting what they, what they heard and they hold zealously to something and they feel like they're doing a good job if they can say what their mentor taught them. Um, and so you're right about the tools. It's a matter of developing a, a, a way to get people good tools to know how to understand the scripture and then take us back that there is a, his, a history here that even predates Azusa Street. Mm-hmm. How would you, if you were talking to the one and explain the truth? Well, <clears throat> that's a great question. I, I haven't actually encountered that I know of too many folks. I, one time I went to speak at a college and, uh, and there were a group of young men who prayed together um, on their own. And I, when I got into town, the person who picked me up said, oh, I wonder if you wouldn't mind coming to this prayer group. And I went to the prayer group and, uh, and it just so happened that um, several of the young men who ran the prayer group prayer group grew up in sister churches of the one I grew up in. Mm-hmm. So when they named a certain name, I said, I know this person. And I, I threw out a few, dropped a few other names. And they, so we had this immediate kind of connection, like, you know, Bishop so-and-so and you know, and I said, yeah, I grew up around these folks. And so we had this wonderful time of prayer, but I used that as an opportunity to encourage them in their study at this Christian college. They had sort of pulled themselves into a small group because they didn't quite fit the culture of the larger they were African-American. It was a mostly white college. And they, um, but also theologically, they were a little different. But I encouraged them to soak up what they were teaching and try to expand their mind. And I think I would, I would do a similar kind of thing. I would probably try to make a biblical case for the, um, for the, um, for the Trinity in a way that exposes probably questions as, as, instead of answers. You know, giving, giving places where where there's a distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit, and um, and asking folks how would they how would they deal with that? In other words, I think whatever my my tact would be, whatever way I would approach this, would be to try to get folks back to the scriptures and start asking questions of the of the text itself. And sometimes when you get to a quagmire, you get to a place where you're not sure. That's when you're most teachable, when you don't really know that answer, and you're willing to to open yourself to what what God might be showing you there. So that's my particular way of going about things. Awesome. I think that's an excellent strategy. Um, and I think it'll be helpful for those who here to engage in a more excellent way with people who may have grown up in the oneness background. And I think that's important as we're um, equipping the African-American community that we understand the distinctions in, our, in, in the theological sex in, in our community yeah. um, to be better in engaging folks. Yeah. Um, so we're going to kind of move off the Trinity now sure. <laughs> and talk about uh, your, your commentary mm-hmm. um, in first Peter, what, what kind of moved you to do uh, a commentary on first Peter? Well, thank you for asking about that. I was invited by um, um, a theological mentor of mine, Dr. Scott McKnight, to uh, contribute to a new series called The Story of God Bible Commentary. He did one of the first volumes in the New Testament portion. Um, it's on the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Len Kohick from Wheaton uh, did, did the um, volume on Philippians. And the two of them are my editors for that. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. McKnight knew me for years since I was a young seminary student. So I was honored to be invited onto that. And I was asked to do the first Peter volume. Um, and happy to happy to do that. 
it was a good learning experience for me. I had not written a full commentary like that before. I've written some articles, but never that that much work. The the but the goal of the commentary is to be useful for pastors and lay people. Uh, it's not heavily academic, so it's not on the order of say you know Anchor or Hermeneia or even Word. It's more uh, like the old NIV application commentary, or maybe even the Tyndall series. It interacts with the NIV, the most recent NIV um, translation, the NIV 11, 2011 translation. We use that as the basis and work from that. So there's a good heavy exegesis section and then a heavy um, practical section that deals with exploring the text more practically or maybe illustrating things. Um, and I think as a pastor, I've had a good experience dealing with people that I feel it's a good blend of an academic as well as practical reading of, of the book. There are some tough sections in there, and I would encourage some people, especially when we get to the section about, about slavery and, uh, and, and, and as, uh, as Peter gives ethical instructions in the household codes, you know, he talks to, to slaves, he talks to uh, women. Uh, slaves at the end of chapter two, women at the beginning of chapter three. Um, so I would encourage people to look at the commentary and when it comes out and to uh, wrestle with some of those ideas that I tried to uh, put forward. Mm -hmm. Would you mind elaborating on the slavery uh, mm -hmm. portion? Um, I know that's sure. a big deal, especially in the African-American context that's as we right. do faith. Um, this idea, uh, you know, of slavery in scripture, um, people will say, well, it's not the slavery of that we've experienced through the transatlantic slave trade. It's a more kind of uh, indentured servant type of, of thing. What, what would you say to that? Well, there may be some, some truth to that. From my research into slavery, I mean, it's, it's still slavery. I mean, uh, the, the, um, the way people became slaves was different, right? I mean, there wasn't the there was, generally speaking, people did get into slavery because of conquest, you know, the Romans conquering folks. There were folks who got into slavery because of indebtedness. Um, there were different ways. It wasn't the same kind of, let's just go to another continent and kidnap folks. It wasn't uh, that. So, so there was that kind of difference. And theoretically, slaves could purchase their freedom. And that was done in some settings uh, in, under the Roman Empire. So for some people, just those two facts are enough to say, well, it was very different than American slavery. Well, those two differences are true. How people became slaves and how people could leave slavery are different. But there wasn't a large percentage of people who, bought, who were able to purchase their freedom. And, in, and while they were slaves, they were really still at the whims of their masters. Mm -hmm. So there was, um, I mean, their bodies could be exploited by the masters. So there was no... Um, it wasn't just like, uh, we make the analogy today, it's like a boss and a worker. And that's a, that's a vast oversimplification of this, um, of this uh, system in the Roman Empire. So the problem we have as 21st century readers is we want Peter or Paul, as the case may be, as we're reading the New, Te New Testament, to be as, as anti-slavery advocates as we would, would want to be today. And uh, so we want them to denounce the institution whereas they were directing their ethics toward a, a, a marginalized group of people who were trying to, um, to uh, bear witness in their, their context under an oppressive regime, they, th those writers, for whatever reason, did not fully denounce the system, 
but gave seeds of uh, dismantling that system. Mm-hmm. So the challenges we have in Peter, though, I think are even stronger than some places in Paul. But Peter says for slaves to bear up, even if your master treats you poorly, even if they beat you. And this is this is really tough for us. I mean, so so what I I'm uh, so part of my issue is the appeal that we would naturally want to make is to something like you know the movie a few years ago to Django you know so Django Unchained we want to see the slave revolt and shoot the masters and kill because we think how dare they let you know how how dare Christians and encourage the slave to do this well Peter's appeal is to Jesus of course um, and his point is that Jesus won not by fighting back in the same way but Jesus won by bearing up under suffering so there's this paradox of suffering bringing victory that we just we just can't grasp as Americans. But that's how stark it is that the suffering brings victory. He's not saying that slavery is a good institution. That's not what's at question. The question is, given this institution, how should you behave, and who's your model for for ethical living? Yet at the same time, both writers speak to the masters uh, in terms of their ethical behavior. And the funny twist that Peter gives is he says, all of you are slaves to Christ. And by saying that, then there's a burden placed on the master, who's a Christian, to behave differently toward, toward the slaves like we see in, you know, in Philemon with Onesimus. So that's a quick taste of what I try to elaborate upon. Do you think that he doesn't maybe addressed it as far as overthrowing the the, um, the institution of slavery because they thought the coming of Christ was more imminent in that time? That's that's one possibility. I mean, I think when you look at the ethics of, of Paul, um, you know, reading First Thessalonians, one of his earliest letters, you certainly get the sense that he expected Christ to come back um, maybe well within his own lifetime or or within a generation or so that that um, why bother dismantling structures when we're not going to be dealing with them as they presently are anyway? That is one possibility. I think another possibility is that we may forget, especially when we think of our United States of America context, we may forget just how marginalized these Christians were. In the sense of Christians overthrowing anything, that's a very contemporary example. You know, I mean, right now, even with the way Christians are seen as a voting block, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. So talking to, to Christians who are a very small, marginal group of people and talking anything about overthrow, that movement would have been squelched really fast. We gotta remember how violent the Romans were. We have to remember how, how uh, much they did not tolerate dissent, that there would be, it would, for any early Christian, I mean, we see it in Josephus. I mean, movements that arose even within Judaism got squelched pretty quickly. Um, so there's a pragmatism there that I think comes through is that sometimes these writers are addressing things either because it's not on their radar, they're not even thinking about revolt, or secondly, there's a pragmatism that says even if you were to rise up and try to overthrow government, there's, there's, there's not much that's going to give you the power to do that. Um, and, what ha- and what did happen, I mean, or what happened to some degree is we see people's lives changed on a more micro level that has the impact for the, for the macro like a Philippian jailer or like an Onesimus and Philemon, the seeds are there for change as long. But I think you're right. I think end time ethics was part of it. Paul's um, uh, apocalyptic eschatology may have driven him to, to not even think of on, the, on that level of, 
of overthrowing these temporal structures. Mm-hmm. I um, I think that's very helpful. Um, in the context of reading uh, the beloved passage, that's uh, the apologetics uh, cornerstone. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the context in which Peter was writing that passage and what practical applications would they have mm-hmm. in that day that we could use to, in our day? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because he does use the word apologia, as you mentioned, uh, where we get apologetics from. Um, so when he says to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you with respect, um, he says to, to, to um, his, his readers, P- Peter's um, audience is most likely facing random acts of, of um, persecution, but, and at the very least, um, social marginalization. They're treated like, you know what, an analogy today is the way, unfortunately, many immigrants are treated. Um, mm-hmm. So immigrants are aliens. They come, they don't know the language, they don't know the customs, they don't fit in. And that's precisely the way Peter addresses the Christians here. You're aliens, you're strangers, you don't fit in here. But as aliens and strangers, foreigners, he says in in chapter two, he says, you live your life with this fear of God, but you know that there's there's this community of folks who look at you sideways because you don't fit in. But you don't fit in because of your ethics. You don't fit in. Yet, at the same time, there are those people who are looking at you to see how you handle your station in life. And he even says, if you do good, even when you're treated poorly, there will be some who take notice. So, mm-hmm. so Peter sees their, this life as a witness. So, so they're giving a reason for, their, um, for the hope that they have and articulated in such a way that doesn't bring or should not bring slander or accusation against them. So they become a witness by dealing with the, the way they are being marginalized. So my point is that when we look at marginal cultures now, African-Americans and in the States and other places, Africans of the diaspora and other places. Now we're seeing immigrants in other places. They're actually a model for us of how uh, Peter, how Peter's audience received um, his teaching is that these are people who are prone to being marginalized. So the question for the majority culture is, can you learn something from people on the margins? Because how people on the margins handle the suffering is often, it is an illustration of what's happening in First Peter. So the answer that they're giving is a verbal answer, yes, but it's an answer that their verbal answer is, um, is strengthened by their ethical living, that they're mm-hmm. living upright lives despite the pressure they're facing. Mm-hmm. Because the life of an apologist, I think, speaks more than mm-hmm. the, the verbal defense they could give. If you don't have the life, um, then your verbal defense kind of is, falls on deaf ears because Amen. people can see, you know, if you can't, you might not even be able to explain the Trinity as eloquent as a scholar or be able to take them to every proof text for every biblical doctrine that we believe. But if you have a life uh, that is not of this world, that is a love that treats people well, that loves people like Christ loved the church, then you have a solid defense. You have a more, a stronger defense than some scholars who do know um, how to intellectually defend their faith. Amen. Well said. I, I'll add a little piece in there. Sometimes apologia is seen in a in a technical sense, like if they drag you to court, what's your formal defense? You know, um, it may be here in Peter. It's not even that formal. It's not necessarily that you got dragged to court. It's 
it's really what are your neighbors seeing and what are you saying and how are you acting? And I'm, I'm 100% with you, the way we act. I mean, I'm, I'm of the age that there was a popular apologist in Christian circles that some of your listeners would know if they're in my age group. And he was known for being uh, basically an annoying person. And, uh, and as much as he would argue and make a defense for the gospel, his actual way of handling himself turned so many people off that, you know, um, it's hard to be an apologist for Christ when you don't act Christ-like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think social media makes it harder because defending the faith in 144 characters or trying to set somebody straight um, becomes problematic in how they will engage you um, later on. So it's kind of hard that sometimes, you know, the James teaches us to watch what we say, but now we have to watch what we type. So <laughs> well said, well said. It's funny because I, I think I'm also of the age where I, I'm wrestling with how much to use social media in that way. I mean, something like this where there's a conversation, I think is wonderful. Um, but Facebook, Twitter, I, I'm I'm finding that I say less I definitely say less things that are controversial or heavily teaching. I do I do have a blog that I, I work with, uh, Missio Alliance, and they post my blog there. Um, and then I, I feel like that's a little more of a conversation you can invite people to because you can, you know, work your argument. But um, but I have found that maybe I'm just I just don't have the patience for trying to argue. But I've seen some of my colleagues, they'll do it. They'll go back and forth on Twitter and, and have these conversations and arguments with people. And I just feel like I can't I don't know if I could do that. Well, I know I can't do that. I know it's not my calling in life. <laughs> But I do think that because some of these things are, it's like Paul, you know, trying to make a reasoned argument, at, you know, whether it's at the Areopagus or whether it's at a synagogue or wherever he's ministering, I, w- I would feel really um, badly if, if, or I would feel badly for Paul if he's trying to make an argument with just a few words and then he has to come back after some time, make a few more words. And um, that I think that uh, that would be stifling. And I feel it's stifling for me too. So anyway, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. The, our day and age makes it tough to have meaningful conversation that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question before I give the closing. Sure. Um, the uh, I know you're passionate about something that I'm passionate about too, African-Americans and biblical studies. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about this when we were in Minnesota. Yes. Um, there's really a push in academic for um, black people to get, get their PhDs and you know go mm-hmm. to grad school. But a lot of times, us as African-Americans end up focusing on race primarily mm-hmm. once we have our PhD, which mm-hmm. leaves us uh, um, unable to sit at the table of when there's other theological and biblical discussions because we've only wrote on race. Mm-hmm. So when there's, you know, a, a discussion on a book of the Bible or a specific doctrine, we haven't spent time focusing on that. So our our input is not there. Um, so um, that's a little bit about how I feel about it. That's why I'm so passionate yeah. <laughs> about doing apologetics. And that's contextualized to our people, but just doesn't focus on the race issue, um, which is a big deal that we have to deal with, but that can't be, that can't consume all our focus when it comes to biblical studies. Uh, well, my sister, I... I can say an awful lot on this, but for the sake of brevity, I I won't say everything that's on my mind. But um, 
but I keep referring to my age, but I've been around these Christian circles for a while. And in evangelicalism, there has been, well, you know what, in dominant culture evangelicalism, I'll put it that way, there's been this fascination of inviting African-Americans to the table, but it's often to hear us preach or to have us do music or do something that smacks of an entertainment or to have us address issues of race, but safely, you know, and, um, and if some of us rile folks up, then we don't get the second invite, you know, um, there, that, that creating options uh, conference that we were at together was one of the few spaces I've been in where African-American leaders were able to say some things very frankly, uh, it was a good mixed uh, crowd, but I've heard some of those, I've heard an earlier generation of folks speaking just as frankly in my years in the 70s and 80s and then not getting invited back and being pushed to the side. Um, but when we do get invited, <clears throat> we're expected to speak on race because, well, of course we have to deal with race issues every day as African-Americans. But I feel like we don't get invited into the spaces often to speak uh, theologically or to, to teach people biblically. So, and, and, and my point is, you know, if we can, if we're only like pushed into this box of, of teaching on race, we easily get marginalized as, as, um, as spokespeople for, for the gospel. It's like, well, we need somebody to talk on race, we'll get that black person. But if you need somebody to talk on a New Testament passage or an Old Testament passage or on a theological idea, there's, there's a whole list of white folks. And also, even to the point that many of us were not getting those PhDs. Like I said, I have a lot to say on this, but you know, when <laughs> I, went, I was the first to get a PhD in biblical studies from the Catholic University. I'm not that old. And, um, and I got that. Uh, I was the first. And, uh, and I was there when, when my, uh, the place where I did my MDiv, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, the year I graduated, they were just starting a PhD program. And, um, and you know, since then, I know African-Americans have been through the program, but, but, I, but for years, there weren't any of us in there. And yet at the same time, when you ask those schools, why don't we have you know, black faculty? They say, oh, we don't know where to find them. They had the potential even to grow their own at the time. Um, there, there are, I have a long um, history with the thought, with, um, with how difficult it has been for places like, particularly evangelical schools, to have African-American faculty. And then when they get them, it's in preaching, it's in homiletics, or it's, in, um, or it's to address you know, sociological concerns. And even if we get a biblical degree, we're still asked to address sociological concerns. So <clears throat> I just feel like we're, we're, we can be, we are more, more uh, we're not as monolithic um, as a people. We're also not so narrowly focused as a people that I want our voices to be uh, heard um, in a variety of arena. I think it's happening more, fortunately, um, but not nearly enough, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I think that's definitely helpful. What resources would you recommend for those who are listening who want to explore more into biblical studies, the doctrine of the Trinity? Um, wow. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't fully prepared for that. I'm looking over on the side because I have part of my library is here. <clears throat> I, um, you know, I think. Um, there are some basic um, um, New Testament introductions that, that would, um, New Testament theologies, I would say, that help to think those issues through. I happen to be looking at my, my New Testament section here. And of course, after, after my big diatribe just now about having African-American scholars, I don't have any in the field of uh, biblical studies sitting right here <laughs> on, my, on my shelf. But I have I have New Testament theologies by uh, 
Luke Timothy Johnson, uh, Catholic scholar, by um, Frank Matera, who's Catholic, also the late uh, uh, George Eldon Ladd. His, his theology has been, been rewritten. But I would say Ladd is a good place for evangelical-minded people to go to, which makes a good case for um, things that are familiar to us, but then also can take us to a, to a more academic place. That would be a good place to start, I would think. But, um, but there's, um, there are probably more popular readers, too. I go back to my, my mentor, Scott McKnight. He's written an awful lot, a New Testament. Um, and then uh, Michael Bird, a young uh, Australian scholar who's written so much. He has, he has written a textbook on evangelical theology and makes a good case uh, for the basic doctrines that evangelicals have. And I would encourage that. It's a very readable uh, textbook. So those are some things that come quickly to mind. And I think I could think of more if I had time, but I'll give those. <laughs> those are good. Those are good. Thank you. Um, how would folks get in contact with you? What's your, are you on Twitter or Facebook? I know you're on Facebook. Yes, I am. I'm on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Rev Dr. Dre, R-E-V-D-R-D-R-E. That was my initials. And, uh, and I, I blog for Missio Alliance. So you can go to missioalliance.org and find me there. And I'm on f- Facebook, of course, Dennis Edwards. Um, and then my, um, my church, the Sanctuary Covenant Church, we're at sanctuarycov.org. You can get uh, podcasts of my sermons and find a way to email me or contact me there through that website, sanctuarycov.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Edwards. This has been a great uh, conversation. Yeah, it's been great for me, too. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. You can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com backslash podcast. You can follow us on iTunes by searching Jude 3 Project. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at Jude 3 Project, on Instagram at Jude 3 Project, and on Facebook at facebook.com. Um, backslash Jude 3 project and remember you can donate on our site so if this um, this podcast and this ministry is a blessing to you help support us financially um, by going on our website at Jude3project.com and hitting the donate tab um, and donating consider donating to us thank you so much remember at the Jude 3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it